0: Good morning to everyone who will follow along and watch this edition of the Hall Call interview series and podcast. I am Will Driscoll, the Executive Director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, and I'm always happy to bring you a new edition of Hall Call. Before we get started, as always, I'd like to thank our sponsors and our partners here at the Hall of Fame who allow us to put on Hall Call, Priority Automotive, Davcon Inc., the Beck Foundation, Sentara Health Plans, white claw hard seltzer and priority automotive sports radio 94.1 they are the ones who allow us to do programs like hall call and everything else that we do here at the virginia sports hall of fame well today's a very exciting episode Uh, we get to catch up with one of virginia's great olympic champions who is also using her platform to impact communities across the country Benita fitzgerald mosley from dale city virginia made history in 1984 when she became the first African-American woman to win Olympic gold in the 100-meter hurdles at the Summer Games in Los Angeles. It was just the second time overall an American woman had won the event. Uh, Following her athletic career, however, Fitzgerald Mosley has found her passion in the business and philanthropic worlds, where most recently she was named CEO of Multiplying Good, a national nonprofit organization focused on fueling personal growth and leadership through public service. Of course, she is also a 1998 Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee. And so, Benita, I know that this is probably a very busy time for you, but thank you so much for carving some time out to join us
1: today. Oh, thanks, Well, Happy New Year to you.
0: Absolutely. Same to you. Well, we were talking a little bit beforehand, and and it's always great to catch up with inductees. Obviously, we are a Sports Hall of Fame, but part of why we created Hall Call is to really learn about what inductees are doing now. We love athletic accomplishments, but there's much more to the story with our inductees than just what happened on, on the field. So. You know, tell us about your new role with the organization Multiplying Good. Give us a, a little bit of background as to what the organization does and what your role is with the company.
1: Certainly. Yes, I, I've been on board as CEO of Multiplying Good for a little over six months now. So I guess I can't say I'm new anymore, but uh, it's been a pleasure uh, coming on board and joining an organization which has such a strong history of celebrating. Uh, cultivating and connecting people doing public service across the country. And um, yeah, I came on board. I was feeling like this organization was something that aligned with my own personal values. My personal mission is to help people and organizations win gold medals in life and business. And I get to do that every day with Multiplying Good. Our mission is to cultivate greatness through service to others. We do that by celebrating all kinds of iconic, amazing people from Oprah Winfrey and Shaquille O'Neal to everyday local unsung heroes across the country. We have media partners that shine a spotlight on their great work. Um, We work with our Students in Action program, thousands of students every year that are uh, developing new community service projects themselves and executing them and being recognized for their efforts and And then we're launching just in a few weeks, a new online platform we call the Ripple to connect these uh, uh, people doing public service, people in our Multiplying Good Network and others, uh, corporations and their employees, et cetera, that are doing public service as well. So it was founded 51 years ago by uh, Jackie Kennedy Onassis. So they've been doing this amazing work for uh, several decades now
0: you you mentioned the content platform and we're obviously right here on a content platform for the hall so we we definitely understand the value of of telling stories the storytelling aspect how important is it to be able to tell those stories and put that out to not just your followers but potential new followers and just a broader a broader base of potential
1: supporters absolutely that's why the ripple is going to be so such a transformational opportunity for multiplying good to take uh, the good work that we've been doing for decades, and and put that in a more of a public sphere, and uh, the storytelling is the biggest piece. We uh, do an annual awards event in New York City called um, the Jefferson Awards, and again, been doing the Jefferson Awards. They've been giving away. In fact, the organization was called the Jefferson Awards Foundation for many many years, and uh, the morning of the event we do something called we have a breakfast and we do something called one minute speeches. And so these local unsung heroes that have been nominated from their employer or from their local media outlet that are there, we have dozens of them that are there to be celebrated and they get up on stage for just a minute and tell their why, you know, why it is that they do the public service that they do and the impact that they're having on people around the country. And it's really the most special moment. I uh, was flanked by um, my husband, Ron and, um, Lisa Gibbons, who was our, uh, one of our national award winners, a past uh, amazing uh, newscaster and uh, on Entertainment Tonight and other platforms. And uh, the two of them, between my husband and Lisa, they were kind of like, you know, wrestling over the tissue box because they said, Benita, you didn't tell me, you didn't tell me that it was going to be like this. And I was like, I'm so sorry. Uh, I didn't know either. It's my first experience, but hearing those stories, oh my God, it's so heartwarming and you really see the impact, not only that the service has on the people that they're serving, but that has on the individuals themselves that are doing the service.
0: Well, when, when you hear the stories, it, it's, it's those emotional connections that really start connecting you to your support base. I've, I always tell people when, when we get to our annual induction events, you know, we have all the speeches. You have the, your eight, nine, 10 inductees that are going in. And I always tell people who are attending, you're going to laugh. You're going to think, and you're probably going to cry as well, because it, these are people pouring their heart out in such a special moment. so it, it's it's so nice to hear that. how How does multiplying good create some of that activation in the communities? You mentioned some of the big names that are involved, but it's really providing that spotlight and and that support to the localized organizations. so how do you how do you provide that sort of community activation?
1: Right. We have chapters around. We have eleven chapters around the country. Um, And that's primarily uh, on a local level, how we do the direct service, um, particularly through our Students in Action program. We have advisory boards on the ground from the local community that help connect us to um, people doing public service. Uh, Moving forward, however, we Uh, plan to have something I'm calling a ripple chapter for lack of a better name, but maybe not have the direct service that we're doing through uh, Students in Action. Maybe though through um, national partnerships with something, some folks like the Boys and Girls Clubs with whom we have some local partnerships, um, having more of their chapters doing the Students in Action program without us having to deliver that service directly first. And secondly, connecting people online, uh, but also in real life. Uh, from the Ripple that will be doing service alongside one another, meeting one another, joining forces, we call it a mega force for good, uh, in these local communities. So yes, we are doing uh, so at the local level and are expanding those efforts moving forward.
0: It's wonderful to hear. And, and, you know, this isn't your first role involved in giving back. You previously worked for, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I trusted the internet on a lot of this, but you worked for the Fun Play Foundation for League Apps, which supports youth sports management technology. And you were also previously the CEO for the Laureus Sport for Good Foundation uh, here in the U.S. Uh, from 2016 to 2020. The goal of that organization was to build thriving kids and communities across the across the U.S., with both of those though there's a connection to sports and community yes what connection do you see that in between sports and building the foundation for a positive and successful community
1: oh absolutely um both of those organizations FunPlay foundation which i co-founded um when i was uh, a vp at, at uh, a startup actually i worked for a startup for three years uh, called leaps and They wanted, they've been giving away their technology for years since they started uh, a dozen or so years ago. And when they um, brought me on, that was one of the things they wanted to do was grow that philanthropic side of the organization. Among other things, I also work with the pro leagues and teams that they have relationships with as well. And um, so we created the Funplay Foundation. uh, And it's a, you know, I just got a, a gift from the now executive director since I left. Uh, um, who sent me a, a fleece that had the logo on it. And I thought to myself, oh my God, you know, when these things kind of come to life, that really makes you feel good that this is something that's standing alone on its own. I'm still on the board. So I still have a, a leadership role, but I'm not running it on a day-to-day basis. But they and lauria Sport for Good Foundation, uh, which was actually inspired by Nelson Mandela, Uh, 24 or so years ago, his involvement um, in sport, and uh, the focus is really sports-based youth development programs. And so these are local youth programs that are using sport as a tool for social change. So looking for outcomes beyond just the X's and O's on the field, but what leadership development, what uh, community development can happen through the power of sport and harnessing that power of sport to, to do good and make uh, the world a better place. And so, um, yes, through Fun Play Foundation, through providing technology to fuel those companies and organizations, and then uh, on the flip side, grant-making through the Laurier Sport for Good Foundation, definitely. Both ways, we were able to help local community organizations do more to help kids, particularly those in underserved communities who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to pursue um, sports. There are
0: so many stories that that fall, that, that come out of organizations like that. Obviously, Halls of Fame, you know, we are known for honoring the best of the best. But one thing that we've also made a commitment to over the last few years here is providing opportunities for kids to be their best. And whether that's through scholarships, whether that's through mental health initiatives, we just want to make sure that there's a positive atmosphere around youth sports and youth sports development because there's professional and personal development that comes from sports as well. Are you seeing that in the current landscape of youth sports right now, are we doing right by all of the youth athletes? And when I say we, I mean, stakeholders, are we doing right by youth athletes uh, in the setup that we're currently providing them?
1: Well, I would say no, unfortunately. Um, But uh, I have hope that I feel like youth sports are on somewhat of a continuum. We have those, you know, Pay to play and travel organizations that do, you know, in many cases, a a great job developing young athletes and who have who aspire to participate in college or in the professionals uh, ranks or in the Olympic Games. And then you have sport based youth development organizations that are more focused, like I said, on community development, on youth development. Um, And there's a whole lot of organizations in between a lot of SPYD organizations who actually are putting a lot of kids in college on on athletic scholarships who are going on to do amazing things in sport uh, as well as education. Uh, And you have a lot of our pay to play and travel organizations who also give back or who provide scholarships to kids in the community to be able to uh, participate at that level who otherwise couldn't afford it. And so I'm really focused on this group in the middle of organizations who are able to both produce great athletes as well as uh, provide youth development that is so sorely needed in, in so many communities and for our kids. And um, we, we really wanna promote uh, really safe places for kids. Um, a lot of coach development and coach education, uh, safe sport is, is huge and ensuring that organizations adopt those safe sport practices to to like I said safety is number one. Um and of course this idea of sport sampling, kids not focusing on a singular sport too soon. Uh, my ki- my parents were great about that. They're both educators. They weren't athletes. They didn't know anything much about sport, but they, you know, every time I showed an interest in a different sport, be it softball or gymnastics, and finally track and field in, in middle school, they were the right there, you know, taking me to the practices or getting me special lessons or something. But they also wanted me to be well-rounded, and so I was a musician as well. I played piano, then violin, and then I became a really good flute player. I was first chair uh, flute and piccolo in my high school band and orchestra, and played a little bit in college as well. And so, you know, for them. Having a making sure I was well rounded, that I was developing different talents and interests. And then ultimately I'm going to find the things or things that are most near and dear to me and that I'm best at. And you can't do that if you specialize too soon. Yeah.
0: Well, we we have a lot to update your bio with flute and piccolo. That <laughs> very well-rounded. No, uh, it, it's very interesting. It's all part of the conversation. We have a, a, a youth sports mental health and wellness alliance that we partner with the local children's hospital here on. And, And specialization is one of the drivers in a lot of the mental health issues that that we're seeing amongst youth athletes because of the pressure that comes along with it when you when you have that sort of ability, everybody just wants to focus and create your identity around that. So it's very refreshing to hear uh, that sports sampling is is should be a part of the message. And us as stakeholders, it's also incumbent upon all of us to, to not just look at the carrot that could be a scholarship or financial gain from sports. It's it's about a lot of the uh, intrinsic values that come from sports participation. Really, the biggest goal is to keep kids playing. So how yeah. can we as stakeholders continue to promote that as we see numbers coming down as far as participation? How can we uh, push kids to to continue
1: to play and participate in sports? Because we got to make it fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when there's too much pressure on the kids, they, it's not fun anymore. It feels like a job. And um, that's the sports, first and foremost it's supposed to be fun. There's supposed to be a place for uh, for kids to build community and friendships. And uh, my, you know, I have lifelong friends that I participated in sports with in middle school, high school and college. And. Um, and my daughter is a, a student athlete now at University of Maryland and running track, of course. And she uh, but she was a volleyball player, varsity volleyball player in high school as well. Um, and so we made sure that she was able to keep both sports going for as long as possible. It wasn't until her senior year that she finally said, you know, in order to be ready for the indoor and outdoor track season, I'm going to have to forego uh, participating in my on the varsity volleyball team so I can train appropriately in the fall. And what I think people are missing is that when Maya was doing the explosive moves she needed to do to be a hitter on the, on the volleyball court, that explosive uh, action was also the same explosive action she needed to come out of the blocks fast, right? Or to sprint. And so uh, what people are missing is that sports sampling and or being multi-sport athletes are actually better athletes and better in the sport, their sport of choice than they would be if they only focused on one sport, because they're, you know, a lot of times track and field is a, is very much a straightforward sport for the most part. Well, when you're on the volleyball court, you're moving laterally. And so you're developing muscles that you otherwise wouldn't develop just running straight on a track, right? So, uh, but most Olympians, uh, or dual or multi-sport athletes, not only in high school but in college as well, mm-hmm. and so the best athletes in the world were multi-sport athletes. And so I think that's people miss that somewhere uh, when they're thinking about, oh, I got to be great here. The only way to do that is to singularly focus on something. Well, it's better for their mental health. It's better for their physical health. It's better all around for their performance if they are multi-sport athletes. There's there's tons of data.
0: Uh, out there to suggest exactly what you just said, that the top, top athletes globally, nationally, they were playing two and three sports in high school. So why are we asking an eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old to play one? It just makes no sense. I think there's there's a fear
1: that they are, a fear of missing out the FOMO Mm -hmm. um, because they have kids that are doing this full time in one sport and they feel like they're going to fall behind and they, they really won't particularly not at eight or nine years old. Yeah. Uh, being introduced to sports early, um, I think is a key. Um, the sports sampling piece of it, though, is as um, as important at that age, particularly in el- elementary school and middle school.
0: Absolutely. And, and, you know, this is a conversation that I'm very passionate about. We could go on and on and on. We might need to schedule more of these these episodes. But I do want to kind of connect... You know, your past as an athlete to to some current events. And this is an Olympic year. And you I mentioned in the intro, you're a 1984 Olympic gold medalist. But that was not your potential first time to be an Olympian. You were on the 1980 U.S. team, qualified for the 1980 U.S. team that did not participate due to the boycott because the Olympics were in Moscow. What do you remember most about that time?
1: I was 18, uh, 18 years old. I was in my freshman year college at University of Tennessee, Um, I remember going to the Olympic trials knowing that by that point that the boycott decision had been made, but we decided to host the Olympic trials anyway, name an Olympic team anyway. Um, And what I remember is being so young, I guess, um, and still very much looking forward um, to the possibility of making the team again in four years. Uh, What I think I most remember is those people who were at the end of their career at that moment, either that would have been their first and only opportunity to participate or their um, last opportunity to participate. And I felt most um, for those folks, four years later, look in hindsight, there were a lot of people who made that 80 team who did not come back for various Mm -hmm. reasons. Um, And uh, some of them, they just didn't make the team. I mean, track and field is very cut and dried. We have a one big Olympic trials track and field meet. Top three make the team. Everybody else stays home. And so some people just didn't make it. Other people were injured or ill. Some people uh, like uh, Ronaldo Nehemiah, who went to Maryland as well and was a top uh, 110 meter hurdler in the 79, 80, 81 time frame, actually went pro in football and played in the NFL for the San Francisco 49ers, won a few Super Bowls with them as a wide receiver. He actually commentated my race uh, with Al Michaels in 84. And he got to only sit there in the broadcaster booth. He couldn't compete on the track because at that point in time, if you were a professional athlete in any sport, it made you ineligible to Mm -hmm. participate. Now we all know we've got professional basketball players and hockey players and baseball players and others participating in the Olympics. And so that... Uh, prohibition no longer exists. But uh, that's what I remember most is just really feeling grateful to be on the team, but also feeling like uh, there was a lot of people that were missing out on the opportunity of a lifetime. When you
0: got to that moment in 1984, having gone through the, the previous four years and all, the, all of the what ifs, when you get to that moment in Los Angeles in 1984, what sort of emotions
1: did that, did that bring out? So i like to tell a little story about uh, the world championships the year before it was the first ever world track and field championships before, you know, the only time we got together um, uh, with all the countries and all the athletes in the world was, was every four years at the Olympics. And now they do so um, at least every other year for the, for the worlds. And so probably only one out of every four years that they do not have a, at least an outdoor world championships or, or an Olympic games. But at that time in Helsinki was the first time we had, the um, world track and field championships. And uh, I, it was my last year competing for Tennessee. And as you know, college track and field athletes have a long season starting with the indoor Mm -hmm. uh, collegiate season, outdoor collegiate season, then the outdoor national championships. And then we'd go to Europe and compete. And so in August, I, I had pretty dead legs, but somehow made, made the final and uh, got eighth place in the world and which was not thing to sneeze at, but not, the performance that I had hoped for at the Worlds. And I had finished the competition and I was sitting there as they were giving us our, our clothes back and everything else, um, warm ups. And a girl sat next to me named Shirley Strong and they notified her they were going to do a random drug test. And she was not doping, but it's still a nerve wracking process. And so she pulled out a cigarette and started smoking after she had smoked me uh, on the track. And I thought to myself, this girl will never beat me again, right? Like Shirley Strong's not going to, if I get next to last, she will be the one dead last, right? Like in the race. So uh, first forward a year later, I was thinking about the competition. I'd made the Olympic team and I was thinking about the competition at practice one day. I was living in Knoxville, Tennessee um, at the time, having gone to school there. And I was thinking about, you know, visualizing the race and the Coliseum and all that good stuff. And I thought to myself, you know, I had thought about going in the Worlds. Oh, I hope I make the final. I hope I run a PR. I hope I beat so-and-so or something. But I had never really visualized myself being mm. on top of the podium. And that was the first time I had done that. I thought to myself, why not me be mm. at the top of the podium? Why not me get the gold medal? Why not me cross the finish line first? Why not me get to take the victory lap? And so... Um, that was really the first time I had had that thought, and I carried that with me for the next few weeks as I prepared for the Olympics. And when we, you know, stood alongside each other, ready for the final, and the gun goes off, uh, but partway through the race, I looked to my right, and Shirley Strong is still there. You know, I thought I was at the at leading the race, and somehow I felt like God put wings on my feet, and I just said, "Not today, Shirley." And beat her by ths of a second at the end of the day. And um, so I'm writing a book now called Why Not Me? It's pretty much finished. Now I got to find a publisher and um, get it edited and all the good things that you got to do. But uh, that's that's something that sticks with me even today. I, I ask myself, why not me? Oftentimes when I'm fi- facing a hurdle in life and uh, or an opportunity that I think uh, sometimes that imposter syndrome will creep in and think, Oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not ready. I don't have the background or experience I need for that particular opportunity. But um, when I ask myself, why not me? I, it makes me puts me in that position where I uh, accept the, the opportunity and uh, gives me the confidence to think that I can, if I can run 13, you know, 12.84 seconds and win a gold medal in front of not only tens of thousands of people in the stadium, I think there were 80 or 90,000 people in the Coliseum that day, but millions on TV, then I feel like I can muster up the courage and and ability to do whatever I set my mind to.
0: That's that's a great story. And I, and I know that historically, you know, you've know, you seen athletes in the 50s and 60s and even a little bit before that with, for cigarette ads, but I don't know if I've ever heard a story after a, a top level track and field race of a competitor lighting one up that's great motivation. <laughs> that's an amazing story.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, we, we just got a couple minutes left and so I do I do want to just ask you one more question. You know th- this we mentioned this is an Olympic year. this year, the Summer Olympics are in Paris. Um, you've worked with the USOC in the past. You, you've helped train uh, some of the track and field athletes through as a, a CEO of sport performance. In fact, one of the years 2012, you you kind of helped lead them to a, a record of 29 medals. You know, do the Olympics continue to to give you that same feeling every four years when they roll around, especially the Summer Olympiad, or or is that something that's kind of gone away? Or do you still feel that? Oh
1: gosh, no, it can't go away. It's still, um, it's still the best feeling in the world to watch athletes fulfill their lifelong dream of Olympic success. And whether I'm there, uh, you know, as chief of sport for USA Track and Field, and directly responsible for the performance of the team or I'm just a spectator in the stands or a fan watching on TV. Uh, Over the years, it's been uh, a a true pleasure and a blessing every time I'm able to watch the games. My daughter uh, finished watching the games one year and she's like, Mommy, how many gold medals do most people win? She was like eight years old. And I said, well, most people just win one gold medal. And because I was thinking about Michael Phelps or somebody like that. And she, my husband looks at me and it's like, Benita, most people aren't on the team. Most people aren't in the arena. Most people don't, you know, I was like, Oh yeah, I guess I'm only thinking about <laughs> from the, from an Olympian standpoint. Um, and, uh, it was kind of funny, but she said, uh, to me, she said, well, mommy, I can't wait till I win my gold medal, you know, and, you know, kids at that age have such, um, such an imagination, and so nobody's telling them they can't do something. You know, nobody has to tell them. Think why not me? Because they they automatically put themselves in that position. And so, uh, I have a son as well who who played basketball and ran track, and and uh, you know, it's to me helping them fulfill their dreams of whatever that is. You know, being a, a collegiate D one athlete. I mean, that's an amazing feat in and of itself, and. Uh, and so I think the Olympics is, is inspire people to be the best they can be. And so that's that's why I believe in the Olympic movement. I'm on a Senate commission on the u s. Olympics and Paralympics, and we'll be delivering a report to Congress in uh, the spring of this year, which I'm we're in the process of writing and and editing. And I think that, too, will be a, a strong legacy for the the Olympic and Amateur Sports Act that's been in place since 78 and the reforms that we are looking to that to really ensure that the Olympic movement lives um, for many, many years to come.
0: Well, the Olympic movement is strong and you can see a lot of connections between your Olympic experience and the experiences we talked about earlier with your with your role in Multiplying Good and many of the other organizations that you're involved with. And you sound like a very, very busy person. So I do appreciate you carving out 30 minutes today to, to join us on Hall Call. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, that was 1990. That is 1998 Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee Benita Fitzgerald Mosley. I'd like to thank everyone who will watch, follow along with this edition of the Hall Call Interview Series or listen to us in the podcast form. Uh, Of course, I'd like to thank all of our sponsors once again uh, for helping us put on Hall Call and all of our initiatives. Be sure to stay up to date on all things Virginia Sports Hall of Fame and the Hall Call interview series and podcast via social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. You can also go to our website, www.vasportshof.com. Once again, I'm Will Driscoll with the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Whatever you do, participate, don't spectate, and we'll see you next time.